0: Welcome to the Den Tapes, a podcast dedicated to the reading of horror fiction. I'm your host, Tony. So go ahead, sit back, relax, and let's see if we can give you a case of the heebie jeebies. This week's episode will contain some graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Today's story is called That Look. Part One The home at 1457 Gaines Drive was a house we never drove past when I was a kid. Mom and Dad always had some stern warning of it being in a bad part of town, urging us to steer clear. I found it absolutely silly that we always took the long way around the hill to get to church every Sunday. Turning onto Hubbard Street a few blocks before that house, I'd always wonder why we weren't ever just continuing on straight to hit Main Street, weaving and bobbing through the narrow streets, adding a 15-minute trek to our journey get to 10 o'clock mass. I'd roll my eyes and settle in for what seemed like an eternity. Anyone that was a sleepy teen forced to wake up and go to church every Sunday morning understands how much that extra 15 minutes can mean when it comes to the ever so sought after slumber we all cherish. Hell, even as an adult, I cherish those extra few minutes under the blankets each morning before arising and donning my work attire. I never noticed how Mom's demeanor would change as we neared the slow, steady, blatant turn onto Hubbard Street. I always took the seat behind her, and my sister took the seat behind Dad. He always drove. Our mother insisted upon it. My sister didn't point it out until we were adults that Mom always turned white as a sheet when we turned onto Gaines Drive. She would smile and look relieved, cheeks flushed with color again as soon as we'd be on our way down Hubbard with Gaines Drive in our rear view. It seems silly now remembering that drive, that house at that God-given moment. The seconds ticking away sometime between 9.25 and 9.35 a.m. every Sunday decades ago. Standing here in the same church, who knows how it's still standing, all these years later listening to liturgical musings of my mother's life, I can't help but ponder what my sister told me last night. Maybe I'm angry that I never knew. Maybe I'm in shock at the story itself. Maybe I'm just heartbroken that my mom lived in such utter fear most of her life. But I do know the reason I am recalling that house, that slow, dreaded trek to mass, is because of the look my mother had on her face when we watched her pass in the hospital. It reminded my dear sis of that horrified sneer that would overtake our sweet mother's face each Sunday morning. The sheer terror from some sort of dread that clearly had nothing to do with 1457 Gaines Drive being in a quote-unquote bad part of town. We lived in that part of town. I didn't buy it then, and I don't buy it now. Now that my sister updated me as to what the real reasons were, I'm just heartbroken. I hated seeing her like that, my sister says while she hangs her head. Like what? I had to ask. That's when she explains that look. Apparently, when my mother was a teen, the house was the scene of some peculiar activity with her embedded right in the middle of it. Our mother would babysit the little girl that lived there, not often, but often enough to be the family's go-to sitter. On New Year's Eve, a few months after her 17th birthday, my mom went to watch the little girl while the mother and father were out with friends ringing in 1976. They greeted her as they always did, phone number of the house where they would be at, and a list of any relatives in case they were unreachable. My mother only needed one number that night, 911. The house at 1457 Gaines Drive is a towering four-story colonial that has a maid's quarters. The Maid's Quarters was turned into a chic pool house in the 60s when the then-owners dug up the backyard to put in an Olympic-sized pool. When the Dawson's moved in during the spring of 72, they moved Harold's mother into the pool house. Suffering from dementia, she needed to be taken care of 24-7. When my mother met Gloria Dawson at the diner where she would spend her after-school hours, the year was 1973. Gloria explained to my mother how they needed to find a good babysitter that would be open to a strict but odd set of rules. Gloria's mother-in-law had gotten to be the worst she had ever been during that summer and the pool house was to be off limits for their young daughter. Fearing the child wouldn't be able to handle watching her grandmother fend off the woes of diminishing health, they shielded young Liz from the pool house as much as they could. This was the most important of the rules. Under no circumstances may Liz be alone with Harold's mother, Gloria explained on my mother's first night on duty. December 31st, 1975, was like any other night. Watch the kid, put her to bed, welcome Harold and Gloria home sometime after midnight. My mother dozed off that evening beside Liz on the couch while they tried to stay awake and watch the ball drop in Times Square. The child, filled with intrigue and poised to do the one thing she wasn't supposed to do, wandered into the backyard, across the lawn and past the pool to the pool house to see her grandmother. The pool hadn't been winterized as an oversight due to the grueling holiday schedule the Dawsons kept. Wedding anniversary at the end of September, Liz's birthday middle of October, Gloria's birthday beginning of November, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. When family came first, time slipped away easily from the Dawsons in the final quarter of the year. When my mother heard the screaming, she thought she had awoke from a terrible nightmare, but in reality she was about to witness something that would haunt her sleeping mind for the decades to come. She flung her arm out and pulled the chain on the lamp that sat on the end table next to the couch. As the room lit up, she noticed Liz was nowhere to be found. She heard more screams, then silence, then water splashing. Off the couch and through the corridor she ran as fast as she could to turn the corner at the kitchen. She rushed to the back door and saw a faint silhouette of someone bent over the side of the pool. She struggled to find the switch to turn on the backyard lights, the sudden burst of yellow bouncing off the snow, the look in the eyes of the grandmother as she looked up in disgust from being interrupted. The child, Liz, under the water struggling to get to the surface and break free of the old woman's grasp. According to my sister, the only thing my mother truly recalled from the night was hearing the old woman say, The child needed to be purified, baptized, and saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. I blessed that child. As the police ushered her back into the pool house. It was 12 degrees that New Year's Eve. The pool hadn't been frozen over, but the chill was enough to send Liz into a pneumatic coma. She died a few days later as her lungs collapsed, her brain activity dwindled and her body temperature went haywire. Due to the confusing and heinous state of affairs, there wasn't much of anything that could have been done from a legal standpoint. My mother wasn't at fault. The Dawsons didn't wanna press charges on a woman who would perish in nothing more than a dirty mental hospital and they couldn't blame a child for wandering off to see her grandmother. The senile old woman died a month later The word around town was that Gloria, enraged with grief, snuffed her out with a pillow while she slept for taking her daughter's life. Ultimately, the Dawsons were seen as unruly alcoholics who valued their party time over their child's safety. No pool cover, keeping the child near an unstable family member. The list was miles long before they packed up, sold the house, and moved to the other side of the country. My mother had not once stepped foot in or driven within a three-block radius of that house since that night. And the irony is not lost on me as I stand for prayer during her service in the very institution the old woman invoked as she plunged that child into the freezing water, baptizing her, saving her, ultimately killing her. I find myself angry that my mother could remember only one thing from that New Year's Eve of 1975 and chose to ignore the very root of it. (sighs) Ugh, this is a fucking joke, I scream in my mind as I pull the kneeler down. After the mass, I mingle through the crowds of familiar faces, accept hugs and shed tears on my sister's shoulder. Tomorrow will be better, I will be back at work, and the tedious renderings of multiple digital security systems will keep me busy enough not to be sad or angry. I fell into a job as a tech for the leading security system company in the region. It's far from my dream job, but the paycheck is hard to turn down. The girl at the front desk has a huge crush on me, and I have to admit, the feeling is mutual. When mom fell ill, Heather was eager, kind, and very upfront about taking care of me in my time of need. Maybe tomorrow morning I'll take her up on her offer. Maybe tomorrow Heather can ease this lump out of my throat and this pit out of my stomach. I can't tell if I'm reeling from shock from hearing about my mother's turmoil over the tragedy she witnessed, you know, blamed herself for, or if I'm just, you know, grieving. I got the chance to say goodbye and tell her I loved her in her last moments. I should be thankful for that. I watched her pass in peace, at least that's what I thought was peace, until my sister explained, the look, that look. I was able to be there for my mother when she was in her final hours the grieving is natural, I feel. This feeling I'm having seems forceful, painful, treacherous at times. Am I grieving the loss of my mother, or am I completely overtaken by the fear she oozed as the life left her eyes? I saunter into the office, just like any other day, except this morning I ask Heather to grab coffee with me after work. As I had expected, she gladly accepts. Sifting through work orders, I notice a bid for an on-property full install of our most intricate system. Something I'd normally pass over because it would eat up most of my schedule this week. These kinds of installs take up four to five days to finish up, but I'm astonished to see the address listed. I feel myself go cold and know if anyone could see me, they'd say it looked like I had seen a ghost. The address on the bid reads, 1457 Gaines Drive. I immediately take the bid to Heather and ask if anyone had picked it up yet. Nope, probably because it's a week-long job. Most of you techs like the easy jobs. More jobs, more commission. She winks and smiles at me. I blush. With my chin to the ground, I grunt. Um, go ahead and put me down for it. Let the client know I'll be there tomorrow afternoon for the walkthrough. I find myself redder in the face as she replies, Sure thing, stud. I return to my workstation, my mind racing. One, I am thrilled Heather and I are finally going to grab coffee. Two, I don't know what to think about stepping foot inside the very house I was taught to steer clear of. And three, I can't stop thinking about that look on my mother's face when she died. I know Heather is going to ask why I took the week-long install. It's out of character for me. I can tell she's itching to know why I want the job on our walk to the coffee shop. I can also tell she's concerned about how I'm feeling about my mom dying. There's a soft tension, like she'll engulf me in a warming, comforting hug at any moment. While we stand in line to order, I assure her that I'm doing fine. Even in her pure state of concern for me, I blush. She lays her head on my shoulder and puts a hand on my chest. Fighting off giggles, she kindly lets me know that she is there for me if I need to talk. This eases my shyness and I loosen up a bit. I raise my arm up and lay it softly along her shoulders, pulling her close to me. When we sit down, she does bring up 1457 Gaines Drive. After her first sip, both hands wrapped around her mug, looking like she's hiding behind it, she coyly inquires. So uh, what made you want to take the big install job? At first, I want to skate by with some minimal answer, citing how big of a commission the job would pay out. But seeing the care in her eyes, I open the floodgates and spill all the beans. I tell her about that look my mother had when she passed on. I tell her how I never knew what my mom had gone through as a teen. I mutter through some tears as I say mom would shit a brick if she found out I took this job. Heather looks at me perplexed and asks quietly, what does this job have to do with any of that i reply where my mom witnessed all the stuff i just told you that happened at the house where the big install is scheduled fourteen fifty-seven Gaines drive i watch as heather's eyes widen she stutters through a sentence i can only imagine was meant to be my god that is nuts she tries not to giggle and stares off toward the street through the window of the coffee shop i'm sorry for laughing but that is just too wild for me to comprehend You know, I love true crime, all kinds of the spooky stuff, and this is just too good for me not to get excited about. She pauses and looks back to me with a certain wonderment in her eyes. Oh, I wish I could tag along on the install. That would be so cool. She says as she puts her cup down and reaches over the table to put her hand on top of mine. Part 2 The name on the paperwork is Garfield Hendricks. I recognize the name only because I've seen him on the news a bunch lately. He's the new hotshot DA for the city, moved down here from Pittsburgh to take the job of the retiring DA. He's been the rugged, good-looking face of most of the recent big profile cases here in the Valley. A school teacher accidentally hit a child while leaving school. That child survived, but was confined to a wheelchair for the remainder of his life. The father of that child just happened to be one of the most well-known heads of underground crime here in the valley, with ties stretching as far as Chicago, Juarez, you know, he was a real nasty guy. That teacher was found dead a week later in his home. Garfield Hendricks is the city's knight in shining armor fighting to put this guy away for murder. The massive upgrade in security in the home he just bought at 1457 Gaines Drive makes total sense to me now. Garfield Hendricks is a gruff, bearded man who likes to fill out his $2,000 suits with a physique he works on harder than he does to put criminals behind bars. He lavishly lives his life to the fullest and doesn't cut corners when it comes to his family. His daughter attended the most prestigious Catholic middle school in Pittsburgh. I assume she will attend the most prestigious Catholic school here as well. But he refuses to talk about his family warning the press not to ask questions about them. He keeps his family out of the public eye, I assume, to protect them. Again, this system I'm going to install makes more and more sense. At the stoplight, before I begin to navigate up the hill towards Gaines Drive, I feel the sweat pooling between my hands and the steering wheel. I notice my breath is shortened, my chest is heavy. I think back to my mom, envisioning our old family car passing by me, I see my mom huddled, shielding herself. My dad checking on her from the driver's side, squeezing her thigh lightly, letting her know everything would be fine. Me and my sister, you know, just kids, cackling in the back seat, ignorant to the fact our mother hated the drive down that damn hill. When Garfield Hendricks opens the gate for me, I see that the receiver is the first thing that will need to be replaced. Our face recognition system will only allow people whose faces are scanned access. Unless of course manual access is granted from inside. I also noticed the hulking outdated CCTV camera as I drive the 100 feet to the front of the house. That has to go as well. It's a warm day, but I feel cold. I feel as if I'm sitting at the entrance of some dark entity a massive creature made up of no wood, no brick, but pulsing evil substance. A beast my mother had warned me about, shielded me from all these years, ready to swallow me whole, devour my entire existence, down to the last nucleus. As I catch myself staring at the front of the place, believing it was the face of some unnatural dark demon I had created in my mind, I slam on the brakes. I somehow avoid rear-ending the $80,000 Mercedes SUV parked at the end of the driveway. Garfield Hendricks welcomes me with a firm handshake. He is wearing a Steeler's shirt, workout shorts, sneakers, and had just wiped the sweat from his face with the towel he hung around his neck. I tell him it'll take me about an hour to finish the walkthrough. He nods and tells me nothing is off-limits and that he will be in the guest house where he had set up his home office right after he showers. He jokes about not wanting to have cameras in the bathrooms. I laugh along with him and pull my tablet from my work bag, hanging it from my shoulder. He gives me a thumbs up as he walks away, telling me to get to work. His cadence, demanding, just like on TV, causes me to stiffen, like I don't want to let him down. When he rounds the corner, I hear his sneakers squeaking on the marble stairs as he ascends to the second level to shower. I take notes on all the entryway points, easily accessible windows, or any other possible ways to get into the house. I plug the coordinates into my app. It calculates the best possible routing for camera placement. With the front of the house planned, I ease my way towards the back of the house. I hear water running in the kitchen. A young girl is at the sink washing her hands. I wave at her and tell her I'm updating the security system for her dad. She smiles, giggles, and runs around the corner out of my sight. I plan out a few more cameras inside the house and head out back. And there it was, the Olympic-sized pool that my mother pulled a dying, drowning child from. In the sunlight, it didn't look as menacing as I had assumed it would. The back door adjacent to the side yard swings open. Garfield Hendricks' mother slowly descends the few steps onto the back patio, a wooden edifice that also serves as the walkway around the pool to the guest house. When she notices me, she waves slowly, offering me a glass of sweet tea. She gushes over how her son has allowed her to help him and the family get settled into the new house. Even though I turn down the glass of tea, she insists and returns into the house. I continue around the perimeter of the property, taking notes on which posts in the fence are tallest. When I round the front corner, I find myself outside of a locked door. Hmm, I guess I have to ring the doorbell. Garfield Hendricks answers the door, again. This time he is in a nice suit, with that bright yellow tie he is known for, the one I always see him wearing on TV. He jokes again, but this time it's about me locking myself out. With a bellowing laugh, he swears he left the door unlocked and gives me kudos because I'm so good that the door locked itself. I ask him where he'd like to set up the mother station for the system, explaining to him it could easily be routed into an already existing computer. He beckons me with a hand folded a few times to follow him to the guest house. As we walk through the kitchen, I notice a glass of tea sitting on the counter. It must be the one his mother poured for me. I saunter past it without picking it up. We walk along the patio to the guest house where his home office is located. His daughter runs around the side of the house at the far end of the yard. I hear her giggle in the distance as Garfield Hendricks opens the door and ushers me into his office. He points at a double-monitored Dell sitting atop an enormous chunk of expensive wood that had been expertly carved into a desk, a green leather captain's chair sitting in front of it. I ask permission to sit at the desk and upload the software needed to get the install started. He obliges. A few clicks, a few swipes, and a few taps on my tablet screen later and I am ready to wrap up the walkthrough. We schedule the installation to start the following morning at 8am. He tells me to see myself out either through the side or through the house. That glass of tea sounds good at this point so I option for an exit through the house. As I gulp down the sweet nectar, iced and cooled to perfection, I hear his mother behind me. She asks if it is good. I tell her it's delicious. She smiles at me and asks if I am finished for the day, and I tell her that I am, but that I'll be back tomorrow morning. Again, with a slow wave, she watches as I see myself out. I back my car out of the drive, taking one last glance at the house I had feared my entire life, surprised it had not chewed me up and spat me out. Part three, when I return to the office, Heather cannot wait to hear all about my walkthrough of the notorious house that sits on the hill at 1457 Gaines Drive. She leans over the reception desk and I try my best to look away, but she catches me looking down her blouse. She laughs and takes a quick glance around to make sure no one was in the lobby and she playfully shakes her shoulders and tells me she doesn't mind. Of course, I blush. She tells me it's cute that I blush. She points at the clock and says, hey, it's closing time, do you want to grab some dinner tonight? What do you say? She leans over further. I burst out with my reply, yes, yes, let's go, that sounds great. I hold a finger up to her, motioning that I will be quick, dropping my bag at my cubicle. She offers to drive to dinner. We decide on a steakhouse downtown because she says I'll be rich with the commission I will make on this next big install. Of course, she suggests that I pay. I am thrilled to do so. It's our first official romantic date. I'm very excited about it. Over glasses of the cheapest red wine and while we share a couple appetizers waiting for our steaks to arrive, I tell her all about the house. How I saw the pool, expecting it to be some menacing hole in the ground lined with giant archaic fangs that eat children alive. But it just looked like any other pool. How before I got out of my car I was shaking with fear, like I was sitting in front of some monster, a creature that I had feared my entire life. Heather's eyes are affixed to mine as I let the words spill from my lips. They are caring, endearing. A genuine interest in what I am talking about has befallen her and I feel my heart beat a little faster. I can feel what I believe to be, you know, falling for her, but I am sure after a few more dates that will be confirmed for me. She asks if Garfield Hendricks is as much of a tool as he is on TV. I tell her he seemed more like a military general than he did a lawyer. How I had an overwhelming urge to make him proud with my work. She raises an eyebrow and leans in, whispering, you can make me proud with your work. She reaches over and runs her hand gently over my cheek, telling me how adorable it is that I blushed yet again. She continues to talk softly, but you know, you're going to have to get over this being shy thing with me. I smile as she pulls her hand away. She puts a shrimp to her mouth and mutters quickly, you know, you're going to have to get over this by the time dinner is over because you're coming over tonight. You're gonna stay the night with me." She holds up a finger, letting me know I have no say in the matter. Of course, I wouldn't choose to skip the sleepover. I allow myself to open up quite a bit. We chat about her love of horror movies and how her family sounds absolutely wonderful, but sometimes they can be overbearing. I tell her how important my sister has become and how my dad relies on the two of us more than he'd like to now that mom is gone. By the end of dinner and two bottles worth of wine, I find myself the most comfortable I've ever been with anyone. We walk back to her car in the parking lot. She rushes around to my side to open the door for me. I tell her that she is such a gentleman. She laughs and leans in, inching her face closer to mine. I tell her I refuse to have our first kiss be in the parking lot of a steakhouse. She laughs, grabs my shirt, and pulls me in for the kiss. It's wonderful. We find ourselves not stopping at just one. She leans back and with eyes that look as if they are about to fill with the happiest of tears, she tells me, I've been waiting to do that all night. Actually, I've been waiting to do that since we had coffee yesterday. And when we get to my place, I'll show you the rest of what I've been thinking about doing to you. She raises her eyebrows and kisses me one more time. A quick slap on my ass and she tells me to get into the car. Both of us, out of breath, laying naked with a box fan blowing on us, we find ourselves giggling. She turns on her side and lays a hand on my chest. At first, I think she's going to tell me that she loves me. But softly, she suggests, You should let me come with you tomorrow. It's my day off. I'll wear one of the company polos. You can tell old Garfield that you're training me. In a fit of pure bliss, I agree. I also almost let I love you fall out of my big stupid mouth. Instead, I ask her if I can throw my uniform in her washer, seeing as if I wouldn't need clothes until the morning. She kindly gathers both our discarded outfits from the floor and winks at me. I got you. Now, go meet me in the shower. Part 4 Heather and I wake up early. Naturally, we have round 2. As we playfully get dressed after our morning soiree, She tells me how excited she is to see the house that I have been afraid of my entire life. I assure her that to her, it will look just like any other house. We hit the coffee shop closest to work again, joking how it will become our spot. After we finish, I suggest I walk the remainder of the trip back to the office and she meet me at 1457 Gaines Drive. She agrees and summons me to bend down Giving me a sweet kiss before I leave. Back at the office, I gather my things. A co worker pokes fun at me by saying she saw Heather and I leave together last night. Then she points out that I walked to work and that my car was parked in the lot overnight. The smile on my face did no justice for the lie I told. I tell her we are just friends. She cackles and tells me I'm terrible at not being truthful. I blush and try to play off my lie. It proves no good. She affirms that everyone in the office has been waiting for Heather and I to hook up. That it was just a matter of time before the two of us fell for each other's charm. I hurry to gather all the equipment, cameras, mounting racks, control board, and grab keys to van number three. I meet Heather down the street where she leaves her car parked at the corner of Hubbard and Gaines. She hops into the van and calls me stud again, then immediately commends me for not blushing. We get to 1457 Gaines Drive, five minutes early. Garfield Hendricks buzzes the gate open. This time, I don't almost crash into his Mercedes because he is in the driveway, dressed to the nines, directing me to park beside it so he can go to work. He tells me he will be gone most of the day, but the house is all mine to do whatever work I need. I introduce Heather as a tech trainee, He shakes her hand just as firm as he did mine yesterday. From his pocket, he produces a spare key in case, you know, the front door locks itself again. Heather shoots me a look. I shake my head, letting her know I'll explain once Garfield Hendricks leaves. As he pulls out, he rolls down his passenger side window while we are unloading the back of the van. He tells me to keep the key all week for the install and then recites the code for the front gate to get back in. I give him a thumbs up and he backs the rest of the way out of the drive. I turn to Heather and tell her how I had gotten locked out yesterday. As the words came out, I realized how it sounded like an everyday occurrence. So I explained further that Garfield Hendricks had sworn he left it unlocked. That's when she raised an eyebrow. You met the wife yet? Heather asks. I answer as I pull the last of the boxes from the rear end of the van. Uh, no. Just the daughter and his mother. She poured me a glass of sweet tea yesterday. Heather smirks. Well, that's mighty sweet of her. I giggle and agree. We roll a loaded cart from the back of the van so I can close the doors. I point to the rear corner of the house. That's uh, gonna be the best way for us to get the cart around to the back where he wants the main motherboard set up. I pull the cart as she keeps the boxes from falling off. Hendrix's daughter was in the backyard, sitting on the edge of the pool, splashing her bare feet in the water. She waved, and Heather told me how cute she found the little girl. We begin in the guest house. I mount cameras and set up the motherboard at the massive desk. Heather cracks flirtatious quips about how good my ass looks while I'm on the ladder. She makes a crude joke about us engaging in extracurricular affairs on the new DA's home desk, and I remind her that I am literally hanging cameras that would catch us in the act. She reminds me that I haven't gotten the live feed up and running quite yet. I laugh at her witty observation as I climb down off the ladder and point out towards the pool where the kids sat. Heather rolls her eyes and smirks. She asks, hey, where to next? And I tell her that we are headed around the pool, under the wooden patio, and into the kitchen. As we pass the pool, she says softly, you're right, it does just look like any other pool. She shrugs and smiles as I look back at her. Hendrix's mother is in the kitchen. She says the same exact thing she said yesterday offering me some sweet tea. Heather says that she would like a glass as well. The woman kindly obliges both of us. We turn our backs, lock the wheels on the cart, and I point out the corner where I want to hang the next camera. I hear the clatter of the glasses being set on the counter, but when I turn to thank her, it was as if she had vanished. I hear her footsteps down the hall, but I am confused that she could move so quickly for such an old lady. I brush it off and continue on with the work. Heather watches Hendricks's mother tend to the flowers in the backyard while I work away. She mentions how cute the little girl is again and how she always wanted to be a mother, saying she'd never found a suitable partner that would be a good father. I hear in the tone of her voice that she wants to know how I feel about having children. I blurt out, nah, kids are cool, I guess. You know, with the right person, I could see myself raising some kids. I smile as I look down at her from the top of the ladder. She smiles back because she knows the right person I am talking about could very well be her. Hendrix's mother pops into the kitchen from the backyard as we are talking about raising kids. She mentions how hard it can be sometimes to keep children safe, to keep them focused. This makes sense to me seeing as her son turned out to be a lawyer with an impeccable health routine. She then mutters something about keeping children clean as she walks away. I didn't really catch it. Heather and I break for lunch. I go over what we'll work on when we get back to the house. Heather gives me a few nods, smiling the entire time. What are you so happy about, I ask. She playfully tilts her head and says, I'm just happy to be spending the day with you. We go back to the house. Heather points out there isn't another car. I ask what she means. She further explains that if the mother was there helping, why doesn't she have a car in the driveway? I suggest that she flew down from Pittsburgh, to which Heather agrees to being the most likely scenario. The daughter is at the pool again, the mother we hear roaming around on the second level. Before we know it, it's 5pm and it's time to wrap up the first day. Part 5 When Garfield Hendricks returns, we are packing up the tools. He parks his Mercedes SUV next to the van, gets out, and gives each of us another firm handshake. Heather tells Hendricks how cute his daughter is. He jingles his keys and stares down at them, and he smiles, thanking her without looking Heather in the eye. As he walks away, he says he'll see us again tomorrow. We all wave at each other, Hendricks disappears into the house, and Heather flirtatiously tells me to get her out of there. When we get into the van, she tells me that Hendrix looked sad when she mentioned his daughter. I remind her that he's been working on one of the biggest profile cases the county had seen in forever, and that he was probably just tired and burnt out. His fatigue can easily be mistaken for sadness. She nods her head and mumbles, I guess so, as she rolls her eyes. I reverse the van out onto Gaines Drive. The sun hides behind some dark clouds. I mention that it looks like a storm is brewing. Heather muses about how she loves a good rainstorm. I ask her if she'd like to come over to my place for dinner, sit on the porch, and maybe catch the rain. She agrees giddily and leans over to kiss me on the cheek. After dropping Heather at her car, I return the van to the office and pick up my car from the lot. She follows me to the house that I bought last year, a two-story red brick mid-century across the river on the east end of the city. It has a add-on wraparound porch in the backyard with a nice wooden swing on it. That's where we shared a pizza and watched the sky open up. I tell Heather how my mom liked to come over and sit on that swing. We'd spend hours playing cards with my sister and listening to old disco songs she loved while my dad scoured the house for things I needed to fix. When she got sick, those nights became less common. I feel the tears rolling down my cheeks. Heather reaches up and wipes them away with the sleeve of her hoodie. I feel comforted. I feel safe. She smiles and tells me that in time, the pain won't go away, it'll just be different, not so fresh. She tells me how she lost her grandmother when she was a teen, and how it had devastated her, but now she looks upon her loss with a smile, because somehow, someway, she knows her grandmother is looking out for her. She tells me my mom is probably doing the same for me. Then she yawns and fights through it with the words Oh, I better get home. Oh, unless you'd like me to stay the night. Considering my current mental state, I mutter softly while looking at the ground. Uh, I don't know. I think I might need some time to myself. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd love to have you stay, but now I'm just kind of sad, thinking about my mom, you know? She nods, caresses a hand through my hair, and gives me a soft kiss. She whispers while nose to nose with me, holding my face with both her hands lightly. If you need me, Don't hesitate to call. I'll come right back. We stand at the edge of the porch for what seems like hours, just holding each other, kissing softly. I watch as she walks away, looking up at the sky that had now gone dark. The nighttime bugs making their soothing sounds all around the yard. It's quiet, aside from them, and the drops of pooling rainwater falling through the leaves when a light breeze hits them. Heather waves at me from her car and blows me a kiss. As she pulls away, I hear the chains on the wooden swing move as if someone had just sat down in it and began swinging. This sends chills down my spine, and I refuse to turn around. I feel my hands begin to sweat, my chest tightens. Alarming dismay accosting me, slowly as it did when I pulled up to the house sitting at 1457 Gaines Drive. Then I hear her voice It's my mother. She tells me to turn around, to not be afraid. I slowly turn my head to see a silhouette formed from the light post directly behind the porch. Someone is sitting on the hanging wooden bench, swinging slowly. I blink my eyes a few times, rub my fingers through them, but the person's still sitting there, the chains still pinging, the wood still moaning. My mother's voice again, sounding as if it were traveling from a thousand miles away, says softly, Don't be scared. I am just here to visit. Please come closer. I burst into tears, finding myself rushing to the swing, falling to my knees in front of it. Oh, Mom, Mom, I miss you so much. I feel a hand rub the back of my head, but a hand made of something light, like feathers or foam. I came to warn you. Then the voice changed from my sweet mother's to a sound of vengeance full of carnal growls. Keep her away from that house. Shaking, crying, and too frightened to look up, I asked, Who? Keep who from that house? Then silence befell the porch. The swing stopped swinging as if it had never began in the first place. I stand slowly and inch my way under the chair next to me. I gather myself, I slow my breathing, I dry my tears. I think about having Heather come back, but I don't want her to think that I'm going completely mad. I chalk it up to stress and grief, my mind just playing tricks with me. As I lay down in bed, I can't help but wonder if it was really my mom. And was she warning me to keep Heather away from that house on 1457 Gaines Drive? I wake up to a good morning text and a heart emoji from Heather. It makes my day, putting a little pep in my step. I drive to work, pick up two coffees on the way, take a deep breath before I open the door and immediately realize it's Heather's second day off. The coworker that called me out yesterday smirks and points at the two coffees. I shake my head and walk to my cubicle. I text Heather and tell her that, hey, I picked you up coffee. She... LOLs and suggests for me to just bring the coffee to her when we meet at 1457 Gaines Drive to continue the install. My mother's words echo in my brain as I read the text Keep her away from that house. I shrug it off and agree to bring the coffee with me. Heather meets me on the street outside the gate at 755. She crawls into the van and leans over the seats to give me a kiss. Again, calling me a stud. I'm beginning to like it. Garfield Hendricks greets us, climbs into his Mercedes SUV, and leaves for work just like he did the day before. Heather and I gather the tools and head into the house. I work fast, sweat dripping from my brow, pooling in my joints. I want to get done as fast as possible and leave this place. Today, I feel it. The presence I had been taught to avoid. Heather, now knowing how to hang a camera, volunteers to affix a few so we can wrap the day up early, joking that I have to share my commission with her. I laugh, but she can tell that I am uncomfortable with her leaving my sight. She gives me a soft hug. That eases my mind, so I agree. When we break for lunch, I am thrilled to notice that we have almost wrapped up the job. I tell her she's earned a part of my commission. She grins, bites her bottom lip, and tells me that I can pay her in other ways. That's dirty. Hendrix's mother says from the hall as Heather and I both whip around to find her tisking and waving a finger at us, as if we were kids getting caught doing something wrong. She continues down the hall and we burst into quiet laughter. After lunch, I send Heather to finish up the cameras in the house while I head outside to hang the perimeter cameras and replace the one at the gate with our face reader. The sun outside is hot and I begin to feel thirst take over my being. I fumble a few brackets and know it's time to take a quick break. I return to the house. Heather is on the stepladder in the living room. This is the last one in here, okay? Uh, What do we have left after this? At this point, all I have is the face reader at the gate and I tell her so. When I walk into the kitchen, Hendrix's mother is there at the dining table with a glass of tea. I ask if it's okay for me to get a glass of water. She mumbles something, but I didn't really catch it. Something about water is good for cleansing, but I was so thirsty I didn't reply and began to pour myself a glass from the sink. After a few large gulps, I return to the house, give Heather a soft pat on the butt and saunter back to the front gate. I take a quick gander at the time on my phone. Seems like we'll finish up right as Garfield Hendricks returns home from work. As I fasten the last bracket into its place, I see Heather wave at me from the front door. She yells that she's going to start packing up. I shoot her a thumbs up and pull my tablet from my tool bag. Using the Wi-Fi, I connect the face reader to the motherboard, scan my face, and test the gate a few times. Garfield Hendricks pulls up as I am testing it. He rolls down the window and asks me how things are going. I give him the good news. Well, uh, looks like we're going to wrap up a few days early. He smiles and tells me that's great. I open the gate for him and erase my face from the scan history. Walking back towards the house, I see the rear doors of the van open, the cart loaded with empty boxes, but no sign of Heather. I wave Garfield Hendricks down, trotting over to him. Hey, so all I need is to get you to scan your face for the front gate for me. He grins and takes the tablet from my hand. I begin to explain to him how it'll work, but he interrupts me. Ah, I got it, kid. This is the same system I have at the house in Pittsburgh. As he scans, I look in through the window and see Heather following Hendrix's mother into the backyard. All right, kid, here you go, all done, he says as he hands the tablet back to me. I suggest everyone in the house should scan their face, you know, thinking about his mother, his wife, his daughter. Behind him, at the corner of the house, I see his daughter appear out of nowhere, frantically waving for me to follow her into the backyard. At the same time, Garfield Hendricks tells me, Oh, hey, man. Uh, yeah, it's just me. Uh, between you and me, keep this low. The wife and I got divorced, and she kept the house in Pittsburgh. That's why I took the job down here. He's obviously taken aback by the puzzled look on my face when I ask, but your daughter and mother are here helping you get settled in, right? He shakes his head. Uh-uh, no, sir. It's, uh, it's just me. My mother's words rush through my mind again. Keep her away from that house. I drop the tablet onto the grass as I break into a sprint around the house. Garfield Hendricks yells at me, asking me if everything is okay. When I round the back corner and approach the pool, I fall to my knees. I can feel it. I can feel that look take over my face. That same look I saw my mother's eyes and lips and skin distort and morph into. I cry out, climb into the pool, clawing at her while kicking my feet into a frenzy to keep my head up. There, face down, floating in the water, darkened with her blood, is Heather. Standing at the edge of the pool is a little girl I thought was Hendricks's daughter, crying. The woman I thought was Hendricks's mother is kneeling, her hands clasped in prayer, swaying back and forth, humming what sounds like a baptismal hymn. As Garfield Hendricks runs into the backyard, I turn to him and demand he calls 911. When I turn back, the girl and the old woman are gone. I pull Heather to the edge of the pool, turning her over. She gasps for air. Her eyes come alive and she grabs a hold of me around the shoulders. She leans in, shakily whispering in my ear, a voice full of dismay. That was not his mom and his daughter. Today's story was tracked, scored, mixed, and mastered at the Great Divide Den. Thanks for listening. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another case of the Hebe Jeebies.